An Old Testament reading from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 4, beginning with verse 5. The word of the Lord. See, I have taught you statutes and rules, as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. The grass withers and the flower fades. Thank you, uh, Sarah. Uh, For those of you who haven't met me, my name's Keith. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, For those of you who do know me and know me well, you know that I've always had a curious mind. There was a time in elementary school where the school librarian encouraged me to try out fiction books for a change because I was always checking out nonfiction. I just had to learn about how and why planes flew. I loved learning about planets in the solar system. And yet now as a grown-up, I decided to, to look up Amazon's top 20 best-selling, most sold and most read nonfiction books And I noticed a little different theme than what I read as a kid, what we often call self-help books, books like How to Win Friends and Influence People or The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, titles with phrases like Life Lessons from a Celebrity or How to Start Living an Awesome Life. I mean, who doesn't want to read that, right? There were books about diets promising, quote, an effortless way to improve your mood, heal your body, lose weight, and feel fantastics, books about relationships and everything else you can imagine, all promising a path to becoming your greatest self. And there's a reason why these things sell so many copies. Life is complicated. The struggles that we face are are real. Our world that we live in is, is messy. And frankly, we want to know that there's somebody out there that has some sort of understanding about it, somebody who's wise about these things, somebody who just gets it because we want to know who to turn to so that we can get it ourselves, so that we can know how to do this thing called life. But as history shows us, there are few things more dangerous than somebody who boldly acts as if they do get it, lead others astray, and leave a bunch of harm in their wake. So how do we know when somebody sounds the alarm if they're pointing to a real danger or just crying wolf? How do we know if following the path that's laid before us will actually lead to the top of the mountain or just over a cliff? Well, nearly 2,000 years ago, the New Testament author James was writing to people dealing with the very same questions that we have today. And like today, there are many voices claiming to be worthy of a hearing, claiming to be wise and understanding on matters that are important to us. And so James' words are just as relevant today as they were when they were first written. We find them in James chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. In your pew Bible, it starts on page 1,883. This is God's word. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, Do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, 
then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. So what do we see in here? Well, far from a top 20 list, James gives us a list of just two things. Two basic approaches to life. Two paths to choose from. He calls them two kinds of of wisdom, two basic answers to the question of what it means to really get it. You could call the first one of them the first path that you could follow the wisdom of the world. It's what he spells out in verses 14 through 16, what we might call false wisdom. So what is that? Well, maybe first it might be better to show you than just to tell you. We've got a picture here for you. Uh, this is the trophy that I proudly displayed on the top of my bookshelf for years. It is from the 1987-ish edition of the Cub Scout Pack 234 Pinewood Derby, which is a series of races between little wooden cars custom made by the scouts in our pack. There were trophies given away for the fastest car and trophies for the best looking car. I didn't come close to either of them. Uh, this was a very, very different trophy. This trophy, though, was bigger than all of them. It was the sportsmanship trophy. And the path to winning this trophy actually began when I finished dead last in my first race, which means I was done for the day, just like I was the year before. But I'd learned a few things in the past year. I learned that some other kids would cheer other scouts as their cars would race, and there was a prize for that too. So I learned to do the same. I encouraged them. I celebrated with them. I may have even told them I was sorry when they got beat. I cheered louder and more often than any of the other kids, and the truth was I truly, honestly meant none of it. Not a word. The truth was I just wanted to win the big trophy, and I did. Years later, that thing fell off of my bookshelf and broke into two. Like, <laughs> gravity couldn't stand the hypocrisy any longer. <laughs> you see, I didn't want to encourage the other kids. I wanted a big trophy. And so I learned the system, and I worked it to get what I wanted. That's a snapshot, quite literally, actually, uh, of the wisdom of the world. It's learning the system so that you can game the system. It's skill in the art of getting what you want. And I wanted to win a big trophy. But in hindsight, the point of making the sportsmanship trophy bigger than all of the others was to teach you that more important than winning or losing is how you played the game. But all that I understood was that if you go through these motions, you get a big prize. In many ways, that trophy is a picture of what James is talking about in verse 14. If you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. You see, the trophy was the result of my envy of other kids who had better cars and could win a trophy the normal way. Um, I wanted what was rightfully theirs, uh, not the fruit of my own poor labors, but the fruit of their good labors. The trophy was the result of my own selfish ambition, not the desire to encourage others and recognize them for their good works, but to be recognized myself, even under a false pretense. The trophy was a lie. The trophy said I understood sportsmanship when in reality I was far from it. Of course... James, knowing these things, says in verse 13, asks in verse 13, who is wise and understanding among you? He's asking because it's possible to have a view of the world and of yourself that makes you and others think that you're wise and understanding, think that you get it when reality you don't. 
It's true for those who call themselves Cub Scouts. But it's also true of those who call themselves Christians. You can think that you really get it when in reality you don't. It's one reason why it says at the beginning of the same chapter, not many of you should presume to be teachers. And yet James says the problem isn't fundamentally a lack of intelligence, but character. It's not a cognitive problem, it's a spiritual problem. Because in verse 15, James tells us that such wisdom is, is three things. Earthly, unspiritual, even of the devil. Earthly simply meaning not from above, not from God. Which by itself um, just would imply that it's what comes naturally. But James doesn't stop there. Such wisdom is also described as unspiritual in the sense that it's contrary to what a life led by God's Spirit and His values would look like, using ways contrary to His ways, ways that grieve His Spirit, rooted in a perspective contrary to God's perspective, the kind of wisdom that James tells us is ultimately of the devil, the one often referred to as the deceiver, the one who deceived me into believing that a bigger trophy is more valuable than character, the one who deceives us about how we ought to live in this world, deceiving us into believing that having the appearance of something like character is better than having the real thing, believing that the ends uh, that we long for justify any means to get them. He's the one who deceives us into believing that if we don't first and foremost look out for our own interests, nobody else will. Not the mindset of a beloved child of God, but the mindset of a spiritual orphan the one who deceives us into believing that we need to get whatever we can get, whatever way we can, whether it's winning a trophy or winning an argument. You see, he's the one who deceives us into thinking that we're wise to others, thinking that we understand other people better than we actually do. It shows when we find ourselves thinking we know the hidden evil motives of those people who are not like us that we are wise to what they're really up to, that we actually understand their motives better than they do because we're just that discerning. It, it, that because maybe our, our spouse did something for selfish reasons seven years ago, that that's obviously why they're doing something kind of similar today and they need to be told about it. And yet if you can boldly misjudge those closest to you, you can certainly do the same with those much farther away. See, the wisdom of the world isn't just about errantly thinking you've got the world figured out. It's errantly thinking you've got certain people figured out, so much so that you don't even have to listen to them. The selfish ambition James talks about. This, this characteristic of this first kind of wisdom could simply be defined as a disordered desire for power and influence, wanting them so badly that you're willing to do what's bad in order to get what you perceive as good. And when the prize that you seek is influence, getting others to maybe think or act the way that you want them to, there's always going to be a temptation to win others to your side by demonizing them in ways that help secure more of that coveted power and influence for yourself over the one that you're battling over. Whether you're battling it out in the public arena for an elected office or simply trying to create better credibility for yourself, your group, or your position. Often it starts by simply considering, well, what's good about my group? What's good about my position? What good thing is it for? What is it pro? And then labeling anybody who differs as being against that good thing. Not for it in a different way, 
not for it but with different presuppositions, but fundamentally against what is good and what is right. It's a way of viewing people that someone comically illustrated with the book cover that a friend posted online. We've got a picture of that for you. In case you can't read the title, it says, Everyone I Don't Like is Hitler. A child's guide to disagreeing online. Uh, this, this is simple, easy to figure out. Dealing with actual people, their actual views, their actual values, that's complicated. But the wisdom of our world offers a much simpler way to understand people, simply us versus them, the good people versus the bad people, where you somehow find a way of always defining yourself as one of the good people. You see, this version of wisdom is increasingly more popular today. We, we see it on the Internet. We see it on TV. We hear it on the radio. We experience it in our workplace, maybe even in our families. But unfortunately, it's far too simple to account for anyone actually made in the image of God. You see, this kind of wisdom, essentially the overflow of a partisan spirit, can seep into the church and become the standard by which we measure all things and all people. You see, rather than first comparing someone's words or deeds to, to God's words as our standard, we hold them up to the light of our own uh, political or social ideology, we label them accordingly, and often declare people guilty by association before even letting God weigh in through his word. You see, this counterfeit wisdom, a way of viewing people birthed out of a selfish ambition and rivalry, naturally brings the fruit that James talks about in verse 16. Disorder and every evil practice. In the context, disorder simply implies a chaotic frenzy of fighting in the church. I, years ago, I had a chance to talk to a leader in his church who told me that there was a time when there was a group that led to so much heat, so much intense fighting in the church that he just couldn't stand it anymore, so he just stopped coming on Sundays. He decided he needed a break. But he eventually came back 20 years later. You see, what he was experiencing is the kind of thing that this sort of wisdom brings, an unstable, restless state that you can actually feel. There's a lot of overlap to what Greg talked about last week, that it's this destructive fire, often fueled by false assumptions and interpretations, leading to false judgments and accusations. And not everybody who gets burned by it comes back. Now, one would hope that having good theology would make you somewhat fire-resistant, or at least not a fire-starter yourself. And yet a previous pastor of this church once wrote, even if someone is right in their theology, a spirit of arrogance can follow. Even with a reputation as a protector of the faith, one's teaching can still be earthly, unspiritual, demonic, by stirring up suspicion, slander, distrust, and contention within the church. In a nutshell, the wisdom of the world offers overly simplistic answers to complex issues. It offers uh, not true wisdom and understanding, but the illusion of both of them, a path to commendation that bypasses character. It teaches us to learn the rules just so we can get around the rules. It teaches us to look out for number one and that the ends justify the means to get there. It's a form of wisdom that puts myself at the center fails to see the rich humanity in others, and ultimately comes at their expense. In a word, it's, it's a form of wisdom that begins with pride and ends with an unstable, restless, disordered state that stifles growth in character and righteousness. As James put it in verse 16, a greenhouse of, where, of sorts where every evil practice can grow. 
false wisdom that leads us not to how we ought to live, but far from it, far from the way life was meant to be. And James knows this, which is why he points us to something better. In verse 13, he describes a different kind of wisdom, not rooted in pride or self-promotion, but a humility that shows itself most clearly in our deeds, not in our words. We've got another picture uh, of that for you. Uh, this is the uh, Spanish long-distance runner Ivan Fernandez Anaya. On December 2nd, 2012, he was competing in a cross-country race in the Spanish countryside. He was running in second place, well behind the race leader, um, who is uh, Abel Mutai. And as they entered the finishing stretch, Mutai, who was certainly the winner of the race, suddenly stopped running. Apparently, he mistakenly thought that he'd already crossed the finish line, and Anaya was closing in. Now, having run the same sport myself for a couple years, let me tell you what it's like at the end of a cross-country race. Your legs are heavy. They already feel kind of like they've suddenly become made of lead. And there's, there's burning in your lungs. Your arms kind of move awkwardly, and you try to think of form, but you really just look like an idiot uh, for most of us. And yet, there's a way that if you find one person just a little bit ahead of you, someone you can pass, you find that there's just a little more energy in the tank. My coach compared it to what happens when a wolf smells blood. And yet when you add to that the chance that you could actually win the whole race, knowing that victory has a way of taking away all the pain immediately, it's like something else takes over and your numb arms and your numb legs suddenly start churning faster than you ever knew possible. So, with Mutai thinking the race was already over, a Spanish newspaper described what happens next. In English for you. Fernandez and Naya quickly caught up with him, but instead of exploiting Mutai's mistake to speed past and claim an unlikely victory, he stayed behind and using gestures guided the Kenyan to the line to let him cross first like you see in this next picture up here. Technically, Anaya would have been declared the winner, but not because he was faster but it was something that had nothing to do with his training or ability. You see, the Spanish runner had the same opportunity that I did years before to win the prize in spite of what it actually would have represented. When asked what motivated his deed, Anaya said, he was the rightful winner. He created a gap that I couldn't have closed if he hadn't made a mistake. As soon as I saw he was stopping, I knew I wasn't going to pass him. Surprisingly, Anaya's coach, uh, a world-famous runner himself, was disappointed with his display of sportsmanship and said, he wasted an occasion. Winning always makes you more of an athlete. You have to go out to win. But Anaya stood by his decision and told reporters, even if they had told me that winning would have earned me a place on the Spanish team for the European championships, I wouldn't have done it either. Because today, with the way things are in all circles in soccer, in society, in politics, where it seems anything goes, a gesture of honesty goes a long way. Did you catch that last part? A gesture of honesty. See, for Anaya, passing the rightful winner of that race wasn't a matter of winning versus losing, but truth versus a lie. It was a matter of integrity, something he valued more than victory. He learned the lesson that my eight-year-old self had not. Anaya gets it. Before he said a word, his wisdom was revealed in his actions. Anaya and his coach were at odds because their view of wisdom was at odds. And that tension isn't just limited to the world of running. 
You see, James' real original audience here is, is us. It's, it's the church whom he asks, who is wise and understanding among you? Well, he says, let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. Or as Tim Keller put it, you show your wisdom by your life, not by your words. See, in contrast, the wisdom to the wisdom of the world, in verse 17, James describes this kind of wisdom as, as the wisdom that comes from heaven, heavenly wisdom, true wisdom, a wisdom characterized by deeds done in humility, or as other English translations put it, meekness. Quite literally, deeds done in the meekness of wisdom. A true wisdom, the kind that comes from above, is inseparable from meekness. So what's that? I mean, has anybody ever, like, you know, put on your resume, you know, meek? Any of you ever, like, look to hire somebody and says, I'm looking for somebody very meek? Meekness, as another pastor, Rankin Wilburn, put it, is simply self-subduing gentleness. If you want an an illustration for that, picture a bodybuilder with bulging muscles gently cradling a baby. Strength under control in relationships. See, throughout his letters, the Apostle Paul calls meekness or or gentleness an aspect of the fruit of God's Spirit being active in your life, something to be demonstrated in your relationships with each other. In verse 17, James further teases out the meekness of wisdom. Everything he lists just tells you more of what it looks like. You see, contrary to the impure motives of of envy and and selfish ambition, uh, this kind of wisdom is, first of all, pure, concerned with moral purity and a value for holiness in our decisions. The rest of verse 17 simply unpacks that purity, not with mixed motives, but sincere, James writes. Impartial, meaning removing self-interest from the equation. James says that this wisdom is considerate of others, rather than just looking out for number one. It's submissive, meaning you're willing to yield your will and your good desires to the good desires and will of others, rather than always exerting that or demanding you get your way. It's full of mercy, meaning that you're eager to treat people according to their needs, not just their issues, not just their sins. And it's full of good fruit, meaning that what grows out of this is what you'd want a life to produce. It's what you would want the lives around you to produce. It's what you'd want the lives of your children to produce. It's what really you want in your own life. In a nutshell, the wisdom James commends, if you want a brief definition, is skill in the art of godly living. Because such wisdom values what God values, it loves what God loves. Peace. You see, while selfish ambition leads to conflict, the meekness of wisdom leads to peace. See, it doesn't go looking to fight every battle it could, and even when it finds battles, it chooses its battles wisely because it has nothing left to prove. You see, the wisdom from above produces character qualities that begin with purity and end with peace. It's a huge contrast to the anger of man that James describes in chapter 1. In verse 18, instead he tells us that promoting peace creates the fertile ground. Being a peacemaker creates fertile ground for righteousness to grow, for life to be experienced the way it's meant to be. They've got a word for that in the ancient Hebrew. Shalom. It's all-encompassing peace. God's all-consuming, all-redeeming peace. Not simply the ending of conflict and hostility, but the experience of wholeness, of completeness. Just think about it. How much envy comes because we feel incomplete without what somebody else has. 
how much of our selfish ambition arise because we think that a sense of achievement will finally make us whole. If you want a good picture of Shalom, we're building one outside. We've got a picture of that. You saw a few of it earlier. This is the, the capital campaign is going to be building first the lion and the lambs. The very center of it is an echo, of, amongst other things, of this biblical image that Isaiah has of natural predators and their prey, like wolves and lambs or lions and calves, no longer existing as enemies, and yet often summarized by what you see in this next picture we're going to show you. The image of the lion and the lamb lying down together in peace. It's a picture of what God intends for us. No longer striving for someone to devour. Wearing yourself in the process. Knowing that your appetite will never fully be satisfied by doing so. No longer living in fear and defensiveness because those with power use it to protect those who are vulnerable rather than exploit them and harm them. It's an image of not just the end of hostility and devouring each other, but of security, of rest, the opportunity for all to grow and to thrive together. That's shalom. It's the greenhouse where righteousness grows. The environment produced when the meekness of wisdom is lived out and lived out together. It's what comes when people walk the path of true wisdom from above. So how do we get it? How do we learn this path of true wisdom so that we actually walk in it ourselves? Well, as we read in Psalm 111, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. See, the wisdom that James commends begins with this thing called the fear of the Lord, which is not what you might expect. Because in Psalm 130, verse 4, we read, forgiveness comes from you, therefore you are feared. Not feared because of his wrath, but because of his forgiveness. It's what we see in Isaiah 11, verse 3, where we read about the delight in the fear of the Lord. Now, none of that makes sense if the fear that the Scriptures are talking about has to do with being scared of those who would do you harm, the way that we often use the word today. But fear in the Bible, fear in this sense, means to be overwhelmed, to be controlled by something, to be in awe of something. Uh, about a week ago, a dozen of us uh, went over to Forest Park to watch the movie Black Panther as part of the Art Hill film series. And in that movie, the main character, T'Challa, embarks on a mission to free the love of his life, Nakia, when he's told, when you see her, don't freeze. Sure enough, despite his lightning-quick reflexes and his agility in battle, when the mask comes off, when he sees Nakia's face, suddenly the quick-moving, almost ninja-like Black Panther freezes. And all he can say is, I, I, in the presence of the one he loves, overwhelmed by her person and beauty, Chala can only stand there in awe. In a similar way as Keller puts it, to fear the Lord is to be overwhelmed with wonder before the greatness of God and his love. It means that because of his bright holiness and magnificent love, you find him fearfully beautiful. It's, a, it's about what holds your attention, about what captivates you, about what you are in awe of. If it's yourself that you're in awe of, then you'll become entitled and envy those who have what you think you deserve. Or you'll place more confidence in your own powers of perception than more confidence than is really warranted, becoming cynical, becoming uncorrectable, becoming unteachable. If your awe is supremely held by what others have, 
or what you think that will give for a person, then you'll selfishly seek out what you're in awe of regardless of what it might cost the other person. Your decision process will sound less like, what's the right thing to do here? What would be fair? And more like, what could I get away with? If you think about it, how many of you today are still feeling the wounds of those who've made decisions after asking that very question? And yet if we're honest, how often do we find ourselves asking the same question ourselves? In contrast, the fear of the Lord is about God being the object of our awe, not yourselves, not what someone else has that you don't. That's where the path of wisdom really begins. It doesn't change simply the answers to your questions. It changes the questions themselves. Not asking, what could I do, but but what should I do here? Not, what could I get away with, but what would be right? What would be fair? Not, what do I want and just how can I finally get it? Instead, it means first asking, well, what does God want? What does he value? What does he want of me? What does it mean to live as I ought? What would promote the things that God values? What would promote justice, mercy, righteousness, and peace in this situation? In relationships, it means asking, what would it mean to relate to this person the way that God relates to me in Christ? The one who covers my shame rather than simply exposing it. The one who sees me at my worst and yet still keeps his promises to me. The way that you learn this kind of fear, this all-consuming awe of God that changes the questions themselves is by seeing God as bigger and more beautiful than the things that would otherwise captivate you. God who reveals himself most clearly in Jesus Christ. You see, if wisdom is really skill in the art of godly living, then we not only need to know what that looks like, we need to actually want that. And seeing Jesus accomplishes both. You see, Jesus showed by his wisdom what the good and beautiful life looks like. A life that brought, in James' words, uh, peace. A life that was pure, that considered the needs of others and that submitted to the Father's will for his life. A life that showed mercy to those in needs and didn't hold back when it would be costly to do so until he saw a harvest of righteousness following. In the words of James, they were deeds done in the meekness of wisdom. See, in Jesus Christ, we see the one who had all the authority in heaven and on earth, all the power you can imagine under voluntary restraint. To those who are beaten down and already afraid of being beaten down some more, Jesus invites them to come to him in Matthew 11, saying, come to me, for I am gentle, for I am meek. The one who had the ability to break the bruised reed or to snuff out a smoldering wick used his power to bless us instead of blast us. We see in Jesus, we see the perfect posture of wisdom lived out in his meekness. Jesus, who was truly wise in his actions, always did what pleased the Father, not just knowing the path, but walking the path because that's what he desired the most. And he walked the path perfectly because, honestly, we couldn't do the same ourselves. Both the path of his perfect obedience in his life and the path that led to our forgiveness in his death on the cross. You see, the forgiveness that the once we see it and once we embrace it actually leads us to the fear, to the awe of God where wisdom actually begins. Because the one who had all the authority in heaven and on earth emptied himself of that to serve us. Something that melts your heart and yet empowers and enables it at the same time. And the the reality is we needed that. 
We need that because a wisdom problem is fundamentally first an awe problem. As Tim Keller puts it, if any of those other things is a greater controlling influence on you than the reality of God's love for you, you will not be in a position to serve others unselfishly. Only out of the fear of the Lord Jesus will you be liberated to serve one another, to remove yourself from the equation, to live by the wisdom that comes from above. You see, our basic problem is that something else has captured our awe. So in Christ, God gives you something better. Got one more picture for you. Uh, this is a picture of Jorge Perez on the left and Yahir Biswef on the right. On the morning of August 28, 2017, just days after Hurricane Harvey made landfill in Houston, Texas, or nearby, and as floodwaters were rising fast in their neighborhood in northeast Houston, these men and three others set off in a small boat to rescue anybody that they could find. So they went out on a rescue mission, and then they went out on another, and then they went out on another. And all seven people were rescued by the end of that day because of the service of these men. Not paid professionals, but those who did so voluntarily. One family member, Stephanie Hawkes, told reporters, everybody told them to stay, that they had already done their part, but they said, no, we have to go back. There's a lot of people in danger. Around 3 o'clock during their final trip of the day, they lost control of their boat in strong currents and drifted toward downed power lines that started to throw off sparks. As Hawkes described it, all of them ended up in the water and got electrocuted, and then the current took them. These men didn't make it back. But they knew the danger, and yet they also knew the need. And so they set out to do what others could not do for themselves, throwing conventional wisdom aside, eventually paying the ultimate price so that others could be saved. Friends, that's what Jesus did for you he too was set on a rescue mission. He too sought those who could never save themselves. He too gave his life so that others might be saved, so that we might be left in awe of the one who sent him on the rescue mission and showed such love, seeing the beauty and the wisdom of God at work, that by sending Jesus to do for us what we could never do for ourselves, that we too could be rescued and experience a new life, one forever changed because of the love of what had been shown to us, that seeing Jesus' selfless act on our behalf would actually be what changes us. To remove ourselves from the center of our awe and let the one who supremely is worthy of it taking that place, not because it's a pretty example to be inspired by, but because it what was done for you. Friends, the gift that God offers in Christ in the sacrificial beauty of the cross that's where we learn the fear of the Lord. A sense of awe and wonder which leads to wisely walking in His ways and ends in His perfect shalom. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank You that in Your infinite wisdom You saw us in the midst of our needs. You saw us in the midst of our failings, in the midst of our, our sin, in the midst of our weakness. And despite what it would cost Jesus on the cross, the mission was engaged. Christ was sent. His life was given. And as a result, we have a reason to be in awe. We have a reason for joy. We have something that can actually dispel 
the empty promises of worldly wisdom and actually lead us uh, and empower us and enable us to follow the wisdom from above that we too would be able to experience the deep shalom that comes only in Christ. Meet us here at this table this morning. Amen.